Thanks, Megan. And thanks, Paul and Josie and Casey. One Sunday morning, Henry Jones woke up startled to find his wife leaning over him. She was shaking him profusely, very agitated. What? What's going on, he says. He said to her, she said, Henry, you need to get out of bed and go to church. It's time for church. And Henry said, I'm not going to church. I'm not going to church this morning. And his wife said, give me three good reasons why you shouldn't go to church. He said, easy. First, I don't get anything out of it. Second, I don't like anyone that's there. And third, no one there likes me. So now you can give me three good reasons why you think I should go. His wife was up to the challenge and said, I've got three good reasons. First of all, it'll do you some good. Second of all, the people do like you and they will miss you. And third of all, you're the minister. <laughs> there's, a, there's a theme in his complaint, though, isn't there? That the church is meant to be for me. None of us are immune to it. It's a striking contrast to what this guy said. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a a campaigner in the Second World War and went against the Nazi regime. And he said the church is the church only when it exists for others. That's poles apart, those two ideas. Churches all over the globe, when they are naturally left to their default position, fall into the first perspective. We need to intentionally move them out of that to a second. But it looks like this. If a church is just left to its own devices, everyone faces inward and you end up doing church. You do church on a Sunday morning. It's important for you to do church. If you're not doing church, something is wrong. You need to do church. And when new people come into this, And they want to belong and they try and muscle their way in and they're like trying to connect with somebody. But everybody there is just focused on doing church. And if you don't quite fit into the doing of our church, then I'm sorry. It's not really going to work. And before that happens, people go, I'm sorry, I'm not going to, I'm not going to hang around here. It's not really working for me. Or, or there's a fight or a disagreement in this arrangement of church. And people leave and the church gets smaller and smaller and it's focused on this idea of, well, we just need to keep doing church. You end up with nasty clicks and things fall apart. What holds us all together is self-preservation. In this sort of framework of church, which happens all over the globe, there's this idea of we just need to preserve the safety of who we are and what brings us here. We just need to hold on to that. So it looks, like, it looks like coming to church and sitting next to the same person every week and never venturing across the aisle. It means never inviting somebody else who you've met, but you're not too sure on round for a coffee or a meal. It's choosing to talk to someone you're very comfortable with rather than walking across the room to a stranger who you don't know and anything might happen. It's not asking God, well, who, what do I do? Who do I speak to this morning, God, and how do you want to use me? You see, humans play it safe. We as humans, and I think we're all human here, yeah, we're all human, we're all on board, all in the same boat. Yes, me too. Well, usually. 
We, we all want to play it safe. We all want to preserve ourselves. And we want to preserve that for our comfort and for our preference and honestly for our very lives. We want self-preservation just so we can live. The scary part is, though, a church that looks like this isn't really a church. That is not a church. It's just a different version of everything else that happens in society. And it has a different name, a different location, different building and different play, people. But the same thing happens there as everywhere else. And when things are like this for our church, we can swap out the do church for we'll do sport or do work or do family or do a barbecue. And I don't know about you, but I'm not keen for this. I don't want to ever be in a thing like this that we call church. It's just I, I couldn't do it. My soul couldn't breathe. It couldn't live. And I hope I'm not alone in that. Remember what Peter said as he described the church? He had a very different description about the church. He said, but you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into a wonderful light. Peter's understanding and view of the church was a fair bit different to this model. This chosen people, this royal priesthood, this holy nation is defined by the praises to God. It's defined by its worship. Worshipping him who called us out of darkness into wonderful light. That's what makes a church what it is. Their heart toward God. Their heart toward God. You see, there's no understanding, there's no appreciation in all of Scripture for this idea of doing church. You can't find a single argument in Scripture that we should just do church. The church was a movement. And what's more, here's the crazy thing. If you belonged to the movement when it first started, you did so at the risk of losing your life. People were hunted down and murdered for joining the church. It's changed a lot. It was where you gathered with others around the person and the teachings of Jesus. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you lived together in obedience to him. That is the church. And as a result, Jesus said, if you do that, your life will be full. That is living life to the fullest. It was the plan. See, right from the beginning, if we go right back to the beginning, to where Megan read for us this morning, Genesis 1.26, God says, let's make man and woman in our image. So God is obviously talking to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're having a conversation. Let's make God in our image, in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, of the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man and woman in his own image. He shared his image with people. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. That word for image here is the word tselem. Starts with the T. Can we say it? Can you give it a go? Tselem. Go. Tselem. Tell them, you tell them. You just try using it in a conversation this week. Bonus points if you do. So my to sell them is feeling good today. It's the word for image from the Hebrew scriptures. And to sell them means image, it means reflection, it means icon. We would call it logo 
So I thought we'd do a, a bit of a quiz to see how familiar we are with the idea of Tselem, because I'm sure we're far more familiar than we thought we were. So I'm going to put up on the screen a number of Tselems, and you're going to tell me in a loud voice who they belong to. Who's this? Did someone say not, not? We'll continue on. This one. Yeah, of course, right? Hopefully they get a bit harder. This is about as easy as it gets. Apple. Uh, what about this one? Starbucks. Starbucks, coffee chain. This one? Facebook. This one? United Church. <laughs> Pause. United Church, that's right. Yeah, this is where we are. That's what this is. All right, how about this one? Oh, I've got you. I've got you. Okay, this. I love this. This is the logo of our city. Do you not know that? Well, they did a marvelous job with the marketing campaign. They spent, they spent $200,000 on the development of this. I could have done it for 20 bucks. I could have done it for 10. Actually, I would have done it for free. In fact, if you pay me 20, I might do something like this. Or if we're really stretching it, if we're really stretching it, maybe something like this. Or if you, put, if you gave me 30 bucks, I'd do this. Because we're all stars on the Gold Coast, right? An icon, an icon is representative of the real thing. It's not the real thing, but it's representative of the real thing. An icon kind of stands in. It reflects outwardly something that is happening inwardly. The icon isn't for somebody who's part of the business. It's for someone who's not part of the business to draw them into the business that's taking place. It shows all of what a company is, and you were, other than the Gold Coast, you were um, very clear on what those things were. You went, I know the company. It shows the entirety of that company. You see the icon, you know the product, you know the, you know the company. We are made in the icon of God. That's us. Those who have said yes to following Jesus, that, that's us. We are created to reflect what God is like. So if people can't see God, they see us and they go, ah, oh, that's what God's like. You see, when the fish and the animals and the livestock, they're all doing their thing and they looked up and they saw Adam and Eve, they didn't see Adam and Eve, they saw God. They saw the icon, the representation, the reflection of God. They went, oh, there's God again. But it wasn't God. It was Adam and Eve. But they were reflecting so powerfully God's image, it was as if God was there because God was there through his reflection. So what happens when a bunch of icons are brought together, a bunch of reflectors come together around Jesus? Well, this is our old picture of what church can look like if it's left to diminish down. This is what the Bible talks to us about what the church is on this one. that we are gathered around Jesus to reflect his love and his presence and his care and his grace and his goodness out into the world. And we don't, Jesus has our back. We don't need to worry, Jesus has our back. 
if picture one is about self-preservation, then picture two is about worship. If self-preservation holds us into doing church, worship causes us to meet Christ and fall in love with him, become overwhelmed by him, and want to reflect that out, that experience that we have with God out. Now, worship, let me add, in case your kind of mind went to, hmm, song choice. Song choice and music are such a tiny, tiny part of what it is to worship Jesus. It's so much broader, so much broader than that. And those things are very important, but it's so much broader than that. Worship is how we treat everything else while wearing the image of God. That's worship. Now, unfortunately, our sin has fractured the way God created us to be. The image of God is fractured because of our sin. It doesn't look how it should look. And it can only be repaired by Jesus. We can throw everything else at repairing that image of God, but the only one with the right tools and the permission and authority to repair that image is Jesus Christ. So listen to what happened next in the story in Genesis. So the scene set, there's a Garden of Eden. Think about the Garden of Eden. It was everything they could ever need. It was incredible, and what a blessing was there, just amazing. And then this big, ugly, dangerous, scary-looking snake slithers in and says, I can give you what you really want. You want it all, don't you? You want it all. You want to know how this whole thing works. You want everything, don't you? Adam and Eve went, oh, I hadn't thought about it until you said that, but maybe we do. Maybe we do. And so they took the fruit, and it says in verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. But you see the fracture of the image start to take place. Things aren't quite how they were a couple of verses ago. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of day. And they hid. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid from their creator, from their best friend. From the object of their worship, they hid. They were scared. Their focus was no longer on worshipping God. It was on self-preservation. It was driven by fear. And we're no different, hey. We're no different. I just want, we're going to put up two questions. I just want to take a moment to reflect how many of your thoughts and actions and relationships are about self-preservation? And how many of your thoughts and actions and relationships are about worshipping God? Holy Spirit, as we come to this point in the message, I pray you might bring revelation to us. You might show us that which we miss about ourselves. You might show us the lies that we tell about ourselves. You might show us, shine your light into the darkness. We want our lives to be lives that worship you, but we confess they are so often about self-preservation. So, Lord, show us. Show us that which we've been blind to. That is a conversation with God we should all be having for the rest of our days. See, Adam and Eve are the caught in that realization, this uh uh-oh, that they're all about self-preservation. It wasn't that they got caught red-handed, it's that they realized 
they were caught red-handed, doomed. God finds them in this, and God's going to eject them, right? Never to be seen again, see you later, dismiss you. It's what we would expect a God to do. It's what they would have expected a God to do. But then there's this beautiful word that says, but. It's where God breaks this cycle and he turns things in an unexpected, different channel. He says, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Where are you? I heard you in the garden, and then Adam responds, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. They are so full of fear. Their top priority is self-preservation. If God catches us after we've done this, we are doomed. And the Lord God said to them, who told you you were naked? Talk about a question that would just unravel them. Whoa. Ah. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? It's, it's a fascinating response. You see, humanity was not ready to deal with all of the knowledge of good and evil. We are not meant to handle all the knowledge of good and evil. Because without God, we live terrified of it. That's where conspiracy theories come from. People live just terrified of all of the knowledge of the truth of good and evil. We cannot handle it apart from God. But God says, you don't need to handle it. It's my tree in my garden. I'll look after it. You come here and trust me. So we have this fear that all the knowledge of good and evil breeds into us. We have an opportunity to move toward the image of God, unfractured in Jesus, that brings us back together again. See, before the image was fractured, the image that mattered was the image of God that we would reflect. But after it was fractured... Humanity became all about its own image. What we look like, who we spend time with, how we come across to others, what others think of us. Do other people like us enough? Am I getting thanked enough? Am I getting encouraged enough? Am I good enough? Do I fit in? It's the equivalent to Adam and Eve's, we're naked. This is who I really am and it's insufficient and I wish I could do something about it. But God created us in his image with no fear, right? There's no fear in the image that he created with. He did that so we could relate to him. Humanity and divinity do not go together except by the grace of Jesus. And so we're meant to be terrified of God. And so God says, I will make you in my image so you can see familiarity in me, so you can relate to me. We can be friends. We can be in the garden together. That was the power of the image. And Jesus, for us, is the recreation of that image. We have that opportunity again through Jesus. Jesus is God's invitation to take up his image again. In fact, in Ephesians 4, Paul says, put on your new self. You know, that new image, put it on. It's created, you're created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That image, put it back on. Because we've been exposed to all the knowledge of the good and evil, and we have a choice to make. And the choice is, which image do we take on? Do we turn to Jesus to be re-identified as God's image? 
Or do we adopt an image offered to us by a world that lives in fear? But returning to God's image, it's not that easy, is it? Like that's a little bit risky. That's a little bit dangerous. That means things are out of my control. That means when I want things, God says, I've got your back. You don't need those things. But when my insecurities flare up, God says, it's okay, just come to me. Just find your rest and your peace in me. And it's tough. It's a big step of faith. A big step of trust to say, God, I I trust you with all the things I wish I could have control over. But I know I can't have control over because they terrify me. And God's brilliant thought to this is what if I could gather everyone who kind of felt this way and I could bring them all together. They would be such a strong light in the darkness that the darkness would be overcome by the power of this light. And they'd be all in my image and they'd help each other reflect the true image of God. And then he'd call it the church. It's a brilliant plan. We're part of a brilliant plan. So let me ground this in a really cool story that's unfolded in the last week. On Thursday, I had the honor of presiding over a funeral of Aaron's sister. Aaron's sister passed away, and we did the funeral. We did the funeral here. And from the first meeting of the immediate relatives, Aaron's immediate relatives, all the way through to meeting um, those, the, all of his other relatives, the same thing was said to me. I don't know how many times I heard it. Same thing. It was amazing. And they said this. Thank you so much for the church. Since Aaron has been going there, he is a different person. You love him. You value him. He belongs there. And it's been amazing to see what has happened to him. And praise be to God. And so so Aaron's mum was the first person to tell me that. And I said, wow, thank you. That's amazing. By the 10th time I was told this, I started feeling really guilty about saying thanks because it's you guys. It's you guys that have offered that to somebody else to say, just come and be with us and do life with us and learn this faith with us. It's you guys that those, those thanks and those, those wonderful words of encouragement need to reach. Each person that spoke to me on that day wasn't a Christian. None of them were, 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 were Christian. Um, but they saw Aaron's belonging to church had made the image of God burn so much brighter in his life. But that's not where the story ends. There was something else that took place on Thursday that was even better than that. And that was, I repeatedly heard people talking about Aaron and said, Aaron has just been so rock solid through this and we know why it's because of his faith. It's the same people saying this to me. And the best comment of all was, Aaron, I think it was from your auntie. And we were standing at the door just over here after the service. And she comes up to me, she's a lovely lady, and she says, I'm not a person of faith. But I can see the difference faith has made in Aaron's life. And it's simply incredible the difference that has made. And so I said, you can become a person of faith, you know. And she said, 
It's what Aaron tells me all the time. Yes. Aaron learnt how to worship Jesus and reflect his image by belonging here, belonging to your lives. I don't use Alan, I use Aaron as an example and illustration, but I could easily choose a ton of others of you that are brighter because you're here, but we need to continue to help each other shine brighter, not for our sake, because we have Jesus, but for the world that doesn't know the depth of Jesus' love for them. Aaron is living proof that we're a church. We're not a social organization or a sporting club or let's do a barbecue or any of that. We're a church. We are God's plan to chase away the darkness, which happens when we own the image that we're made in. It's the image God has given me and I'm going to claim it for myself. You see, our reflection of God, the image of God within us, it grows brighter when we live in worship. And we can only do that together. We can only learn to follow Jesus and what it really is to follow Jesus when we do that together. Remembering worship is how we treat everything else while wearing the image of God. So how do we get there? Where do we move to this morning? What do we do? The greatest gift that each of us can give God is not trying to be good, It is not trying to be holy. It's not even trying to please God in some wonderful way. The greatest gift we can give God this morning is our fear. Give God your fear. And worship begins with that. When you worship God, you become fearless. When we give God our fear, his power begins to be unleashed in us. But we hold on to our fear because it's this safety blanket. Like it's, it's, It gives us this false sense of security. If I let go of this fear, what can I hide behind? You can hide behind God. He has your back. He has you. So today we need to each give God our fear. And those fears are wide ranging. But we all have them. And they all blur an image and, and they all blur and dull the image of God in us. So I just want to lead us through just a short time of prayer. It might not be short, who knows, but just a time of prayer where we can actually present God with our fears. We can give them because you don't need them. Do not need your fears. You've got God. So let's move into a time of prayer now. Let's pray.